Well, we enjoyed um, our Advent season, thinking about the hope that we have in Christ, and now we get to jump back into this picture of Christ. We get to see Him as He's been given to us in Scripture, and so I'm thankful that uh, we're back in the book of Mark, and we're going to be here for several months, so um, we're, we're still uh, talking about what it's like to be on the road with Jesus, and to be traveling, to be moving toward this goal that we have, and to do it with the, with the goal. Like, that's, that's amazing that we have that. And so, we've, maybe we have to take a pause and just remember, like, all of the things that we've seen in Mark. Maybe not all of them, because that would take a little while. But some of the highlights, right? The idea that Jesus comes onto the scene in the book of Mark, and he's, he's foreshadowed by John... And then all of a sudden he comes in chapter 1 and he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. We have this glorious picture of his baptism, how he comes out of the water and this voice from heaven says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? And we have this, this just proclamation, this heralding, this announcement of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And then as after he said, Hey, the kingdom is at hand, we've begun to see what does that look like. We've seen how he enters in and he meets people in their need, whether it was a physical need, uh, an emotional need, uh, a need for healing, a need to be included rather than excluded, a need of rebuke, and Jesus met all of their needs. I think sometimes we, we only like certain needs, we only like to bring certain needs to Jesus and have them met, but there's times where uh, we need the... The need, we have the need for rebuke. We have the need for encouragement. We have the need for whatever it is, and Jesus meets those needs, and we've seen it in miraculous ways. We've seen even his control over, over all of the earth, not just humanity, but over the storm, right? When, as he calms the storm. And we've seen how Jesus goes about doing that. And he's brought the disciples along in that process. He's done most of the work, and then he's slowly beginning to tell them, okay, I want you to operate in the same way. And so this speaks thousands of years later to us, right? What does it look like to follow Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, to grow in our, in our doing, to grow in our action, but never leaving the place of complete and utter trust in the one who's called us? That's where we get caught up. And, and today, we're going to see that even the disciples got caught up in that. Even they got caught up in the doing rather than the being and the trusting. And so, today, that's good news for us. Even as Chris led us in the prayer of confession, that's good news for us that Jesus has invited us, but we never leave the place of complete and utter dependence, trust, faith, belief, hope in Jesus. And so, let's take a moment and just pray and say, God, you... Before we run out, we, we even had the gift of, of rebuke this morning, that maybe some of the things that we were doing were things that, that were uh, very tangible and necessary, and yet there's a, a people around us that need to hear the gospel. And so to be able to hear that is the kindness of God to say, hey, remember, remember what I've called you to do. And so we'll, we'll take a minute and just say, God, Lord, we're thankful for your gift, the gift of your word. I pray for clarity today. I pray that as Chris prayed, it would be your words and not mine. 
God, that we would see your face, that we would hear your voice, that we would hear your compassion towards a, a child who is out of control, who has no control in his life, and you come in and you heal and you cast out the demon that was in him and you restore him into right relationship with you first and foremost and then with all others. We thank you for the gift of the rebuke to the disciples. And we thank you for the encouragement to pray. Lord, give us ears to hear today and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Remember, it opens with, and, they, and when they came to the disciples, where are they, who are they, and where are they coming from? So we, we kind of have to go back a month in our time, um, but maybe just an hour or so in Jesus' time. But for us to remember, hey, the last time we were in the book of Mark, they were talking about the transfiguration. Right, the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus grabs uh, Peter, James, and John, the sons of thunder, and he takes them up onto the mountain. And on the mountain, God reveals Jesus in his glory to the disciples. And they see Jesus talking with Elijah and Moses, and, and they're talking about the things that are to come. And the things that are to come are, are what Jesus is going to walk through, the passion of Christ that will redeem a broken and fallen humanity and restore us to right relationship with God. And so they're, they're discussing this. James and John are in wonder. Peter runs his mouth and says, hey, we should probably just set up a tent right here and do this thing, and this is awesome. And Jesus is saying, no, we got, we got work to do. we got places to go, and you're going with me. And so that's where they're coming from. And so they're coming back down the mountain. And when they come down the mountain, what do they find? Well, it says that they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes were arguing with them. The them in that second part is, is the disciples that had, that had stayed. Right? Disciples that Jesus had called to go with him, but he had also kept them at the bottom of the mountain while he took these three disciples up to the top of the mountain. And so they're arguing, and many uh, commentators think that they're, they're arguing um, uh, about and making accusations about who Jesus is. Because what had happened, right? This man had come and he had brought his son who had uh, a, a disease or a, a demon, right? Both, both are probably true. See, sometimes we think, oh, well, I read that and I read that he's got, um, in, he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. See, in our day and age, we think, oh, that's not a spirit. That's like an epilepsy. That's, he's got a sickness that doesn't necessarily have to be attributed to a spirit. But, but we would be wrong because Jesus obviously casts the spirit out of him and heals the son. But we're so quick, and I think that's a caution to us. Like, we, we can't interpose our 20th century idea of what is spiritual and what is real onto what God is saying. God gets to define, hey, this is a spiritual thing that's going on. He's possessed by a demon, and Jesus is going to cast that demon out of him. And so this man has come. And the disciples, because they had been commissioned earlier on, if you remember, in Mark 6, Jesus sends the disciples out, and he sends them out in his name with his authority to go and do a work, to cast out demons. So Mark 6, verse 7 says, He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then 
in that same chapter, verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And what happened? They cast out many demons and anointed many, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Listen, the disciples had already been conduits of God's mercy and His grace and His healing and His deliverance to, to a people that needed it. And so when this man brings, this, brings his son, they've got some confidence. They've got some trust. And the, the hard part is seeing where things kind of changed. Like what happened that before they were able to do this, and now they try to cast out this demon, and he can't, he can't be cast out. Many people think that it's because um, they're actually they're growing in their own abilities what started with a complete faith and trust in the one who could do it has somehow slightly changed to where now they're thinking, oh, yeah, I can do that. But the reality is they, they can't do that. They did it before because they were trusting in Jesus wholeheartedly. The first time you do something, you're amazed that you did it. <laughs> like you just are blown away. But the next time you come to it with a little more self-confidence, Right? thinking that we can do this thing. But what Jesus is calling us to is that very first time where we are amazed because of what He has done, that's where we stay. We never leave from that place and move on to, oh, now I know the technique. Now I know the proper way to do it. Now I know that if I studied enough or brought... Listen, if there's a place where this is very true, it's as a pastor. (laughs) Like having done this for a, a little over a year now, I, I can get into these rhythms thinking, yeah, but I know what I need to do. I just need, I need to study the word and then I can make it make sense. But the reality is, no, we come as a people desperately in need of the Holy Spirit, the power of God's word to transform our lives. We don't, there's no rhythm or rhyme that we can make it happen. We come and we trust and we ask God to do it. And so if that's the case, then these disciples might be doing this of their own strength. And we know, because we've seen it in our own lives, that if if we try to come to something with our own strength that only God can do, it won't happen. What we need is we need a place of supreme dependence on God. It appears that the disciples are attempting to operate on past victories rather than an ongoing trust in Jesus. It's hard. It's hard not to take the evidence of the past and say that's sufficient to to make me believe rather than coming back at square one and say, God, if you don't move, this is the only way this thing happens. If you don't save this child, that's the only way it happens. And the funny thing is, Jesus is just up on the mountain. Like, they could have said, hey, actually, we don't have any power, but Jesus does. <laughs> if, you, if you'll wait, like, we'll ask with you right now, because he might do it. But if he doesn't, don't worry, he'll be back. But instead, they tried to do it in and of themselves. And so the scribes are coming, and they're, they're berating them. And in this day, we don't quite understand disciple, like they had an understanding of disciple then. The people that would follow the disciples were a direct reflection of the master. And so, man, that's, if that doesn't convict us today, like, I don't know what will. Like, if we say that we believe, if we are Christians and we love Jesus, then that means that we are a direct reflection 
of Jesus. I hope that's true. I'm praying that that would be true for us, that, that when people see us, they would see some of Jesus. But this idea that, that if the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, then probably Jesus couldn't do it either. And so that's what the scribes are, the accusations that they're making. And there's this argument going on, and Jesus comes in, and he says, what are you arguing about? What are you arguing about with them? And then the, man, the father comes up and he says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. There's no... Um, clear indication of who he's, who he's condemning at that point, who he's calling out at that point. Oh, faithless generation. But for sure, it's got to be some of the disciples, right? It's got to be those disciples who are trying to do things in and of their own strength, knowing, having seen Jesus do these miracles, these powerful things, why would they try to do it in their own strength? And so Jesus is, is saying, you faithless generation. And that's what we are. We're a faithless generation. We are a people that will go out and try to do things of our own rather than waiting and having faith and trust and belief in Jesus. And so Jesus says, bring him to me. I love um, the idea that while Jesus both makes the accusation against a generation who is faithless, he also invites to come to him. That's the kindness of God. That's the beauty of our Savior, that while he calls us out in our sin, he also says, come to me and I will do something about it. I will make the change that needs to be made. And so we have this invitation from Jesus, bring him to me. Verses 20 through 24 really really put an emphasis on a belief and unbelief. This idea that the disciples were acting in unbelief, they were acting in their own strength rather than believing and trusting in the power of God. But in 20, it says, And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the Father, How long has this been happening to him? If we've seen some things in the Gospel of Mark, it's been this incredible compassion and humanity of Jesus. The way that he would interact with people, the way that he would touch those who were unclean and make them clean, the way that he would call in those who were ostracized and outcasts and bring them to the table and feast and dine with them, that is the humanity of Jesus that we've seen. Now Jesus could have said, hey, bring him to me and then immediately cast them out, but he enters into this man's sorrow to, to even begin to relive like how long has this been happening so that this man can make this confession like this is, this is hard this is horrible he says from childhood like it's, it's been a long time Jesus it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him like this thing 
is no small thing. It's trying to destroy my son. It's trying to kill him. And then the man gets to cry out and say, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's got doubts now. Right? He, he's got doubts because these disciples tried to do it and they couldn't do it and now there's this big argument and all he wants in the midst of this theological argument that's going on is his son to be whole. And so he's crying out to God and he's got doubts. He says, if you can. If you can, will you heal him? Will you have compassion on us and help us? The son's problem wasn't just the son's problem. The son's problem was the father's problem too. I love that. It says, have compassion on us and help us. And then we begin to put that word, those words into all of our mouths, right? That it's not, he's not even just crying out for him and his son. This is a cry of humanity. If you would, have compassion on us. Save us. Help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can. If, if I can. The question is not a matter of if. If I can, it's not a matter based on my ability. It's a matter based on your belief. You see, this idea of belief is one that we've gotten wrong. I don't know if you're, if you've heard of Ted Lasso, the craze, like that's been going on this last year about this TV show. And one of the things that happens is that on on the top of where the the soccer players go out, it's football. If you're really sticking with it, but in, uh, in America, we call it soccer. Where they go out, they slap the, the sign on the door that says believe. And so there's, there's this huge emphasis on believe. Ted Lasso says, I believe in hope. I believe in believe. He says some really funny, crazy stuff. But this idea is, is true. Like we, we have this idea that if we believe and hope in just something, it'll get better. It's a very general with no object of what you should believe in, but just that you should believe. Thinking about that for my neighbors, like the idea that they would say, I believe. What do you, but what do you believe in? Right? It's not so much, it's not so important that you believe, it's important what you believe in. The object of our belief is more important than the amount of belief that we have. You see, the object of our belief is, is what's going to change our circumstances. When we talk about belief here at Cross Point Coast, we're always talking about belief, hope, trust, dependence on someone or something with enough weight to center our whole life around it. Like the object of our belief is the most important thing that we talk about. Our whole gospel rhythms and the way that we've uh, used some faithful language to describe what does it look like to live this life centered around Jesus and revolving around Him. Our gospel rhythms center around Jesus and His gospel. We preach Christ and Him crucified because it is the only truth sufficient enough to save and transform our lives for the glory of God. The object of our faith is the most important thing that we have. And so when we begin to talk with people, it's got to come to an explicit pointing to Jesus. Maybe not when we begin. Maybe it's not like, hello, you need to know Jesus. But maybe it's a hello 
How's, what are, what's going on in your life? Let me hear you. Let me hear the needs you have. And then let me point you not just to belief, not just to a generic hope, but to Jesus. The one who, if your hope is in Him, can change and transform things. The one who, if your hope and your belief is in Him, can take the Son who is deaf and mute and, and afflicted by a demon and cast the demon out and restore the Son. That's where we have to go. Have to go there. Otherwise, it's just a generic Ted Lasso, I believe and believe. Like what? Nobody even knows what that means. But if we say like John, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name, John 20 verse 31, then we have life. Right? That, that belief leads us from death to life. And it's an eternal life that's, that's both for eternity, but it's also like a fullness of life here and now. John 10.10, 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not just a promise of one day you'll have this great life in heaven. But it's a promise that today you can have a life filled with abundant joy because you rest in the confidence of your Savior. Because you rest in a complete dependence and trust in Him. Your life is not your own. It's been bought with a price. Jesus laid down His life so that we could have life. So we said, listen, it's not the amount that matters most, but the object of your faith that matters most. But also, Jesus is saying right here that amount matters. <laughs> like, like, it should be this increasing thing. Jesus is calling this Father and the disciples to increasing faith and dependence in Him. So while the object of our faith is Jesus, we should be living lives that grow in our desire and to know Him, and our faith and trust in Him. Second Peter 1, 5-8 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we just heard a couple um, buzzwords right there. Efficient and fruitful. In our world today, there is a huge stock placed on efficiency and on productivity. And you can get lost in this. And now we can take God's word and we can make it into this thing that moves us towards these uh, cultural goals of productivity and efficiency. Even by quoting a scripture like this to say, oh, this is what we should be moving towards is this increase, uh, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what we do there is that increasing faith and trust leads us to the knowledge of Jesus. We're putting, the, we're making the goal the wrong thing. That scripture is pointing us to the knowledge, knowing our God, knowing our Savior, 
seeing His face, trusting in Him more. He's the object of our belief. And then we'll live fruitful and effective lives. But let's not get the primary goal confused with the supplementary outcome. The primary goal of knowing Jesus. That's the sustenance. That's the satisfying meal is knowing your Savior. The gravy is just that you might live a life that's effective and fruitful. But it's going to have even, even a different definition of what effective and fruitful is, right? From what the world would say. The world would tell us that we, we have to produce and we have to do these things and we have to make much of our lives. And Jesus says, no, everything that you need is found in me. You need to know me and you need to make me known. That's it. That's, a, that's an, an effective and a fruitful life is to know Jesus and to make him known. It's important to remember in our current age and culture as we battle that both in our own minds and hearts, and as we battle that with people that we're walking with. It's important for me to remember that when I have deadlines or, or at school or at work. It's important for me to remember while I'm driving the car and my road rage rises up because I'm not being efficient. It's important for me to remember at bedtime when I'm trying to put all the kids to bed. Like, what is the goal here? Is the goal uh, to be effective and fruitful so that then I can go get some downtime, or is the the goal to know my Savior, for my kids to see the knowledge of my Savior in my response to them, in my patience with them, and my love for them. And, this, and vice versa. Like, that's not just a one-way thing. Is it, right? For my kids, the goal then would be to trust that mom and dad have a good plan for bedtime <laughs> and that they love me and that Jesus loves me. And so that would be our hope is that we would rest there and that would be our goal, not these other supplemental things. I love um, Keller just to kind of put a wrap on this idea of, of belief and unbelief that we see in the man's response. The man says some of the most beautiful words that we could hear. He says, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? If you are a Christian, you know what he's saying. <laughs> you know that that I have this desire to know God and trust Him, and yet I also recognize that I am not doing that with every aspect of my life. And so the man puts words to those thoughts that we have. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Tim Keller says, this man asked Jesus, would you heal my son? And Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes. That is, I can do it if you, if you can believe. The father responds, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That is, I'm trying, but I'm full of doubts. Then Jesus heals the man's son. This is very good news. Through Jesus, we don't, have per we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. Repentant helplessness. Man. But again, that's not the world's definition <laughs> of what our lives should look like. And yet, by Jesus' words, he's saying, oh, faithless generation. And so what does he long for? He longs for a faithful generation that would, that would sit and trust and believe, that would have this repentant helplessness where they trust in their Savior and have access to God. Verses, verse 25 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Imagine the father in that moment. Both, like initially, when, the, when another seizure hits the son, another, the, the demon is thri- writhing within him and casting him about, and he's, he's afraid, and yet then everything goes still. And people were worried that maybe the son is dead. But Jesus goes and he takes him, took, took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. Listen, this is the miracle of this story. This son who had had everything taken away from him, and we've talked about this, but I, I just don't think we get it. When they, had a, when they had an issue where someone was demon-possessed, or even if someone was sick, or someone had uh, uh, leprosy, they were, they were outcasts, they had nothing and their whole family would be outcasts, and they would have nothing. And so this father is coming in desperation, bringing his son. And Jesus heals him and restores him and takes his hand. That's huge. The idea that he would embrace this child who is clearly demon-possessed and grab his hand and heal him and lift him up. That's, that's amazing. He's restored unto that young man. Everything. Everything that had been taken away by this affliction. He had been outcast. He couldn't have friends. His father is probably dealing with like, how do I attend to my son and then still try to live in the society? And so the, the father has been outcast also. And who knows how many other family members in that same boat. And so they are all rejected by the culture. Living a life without any real relationships. And Jesus comes and he heals this boy. And now this boy is going to be able to have real relationships. Be able to play with his friends. Like just simple stuff that we take for granted. Jesus has in this moment restored all those things to him. But the greatest thing that he's given both the boy and the father is faith. Faith in, faith in Jesus' ability to heal because they've seen it firsthand. They've seen that he can cast out the demon, that he can take what the devil means for good, what the devil is using for destruction and to tear down life. Jesus comes and he brings life, and life abundantly. And we see that in this moment. And before we move on to what does that mean for us, we need to see, like, no, that is glorious and good and awesome. And God, if you can do it for him, you can do it for me. Thank you, Jesus. And if you can do it for me, you can do it for my neighbor. And you can do it for the people that I've already put on the, on the, the list of um, unapproachable, unredeemable, unfixable. You can fix them, God. Will you do that? And will you help me not put people on that list anymore? And so we see that. 28 and 29 are pretty key for us, too. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out 
by anything but prayer. You see, what is prayer? I think we all have different ideas of what prayer is. But we do know how Jesus has taught us to pray. He's taught us to pray in a way that sounds really weird. It sounds like we depend on Him. Right? The Lord's Prayer, when we, when we pray and we ask that the Lord would take care of everything. <laughs> because He's the only one that can take care of everything. Feels like, I don't know, weak. I don't know, it feels like we're not doing enough. The reality is that prayer is faith in action. Prayer is when we put words to our trust and our dependence and our hope in Jesus. And that we get to do it together because sometimes we, we need to hear somebody else praying. We need to hear somebody else hope and trust so that it can become our own at the same time. We need to pray for one another. I love Spurgeon. He says, prayer itself is an art which only the Holy Ghost can teach us. He is the giver of all prayer. Pray for prayer. Pray till you can pray. Like this idea that it's, what are we doing? We're, we're learning how to trust. We're learning how to hope. We're asking God to pour that into us so that we would have more and more trust and faith and dependence on Him. Listen, if what's true, what we said earlier about the disciples trying to act in and of their own strength to cast this demon out, Jesus is reminding them, listen, prayer is faith in me. This demon can only be cast out through a complete and utter dependence, a helpless dependence on me. And this echoes the voice of the Father when Spurgeon talks about pray for prayer. Pray till you can pray. The, the Father, remember, He says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? This ongoing growth, this ongoing moving towards uh, a greater faith, a greater trust, a greater dependence, a greater belief in our God who is able to save. This morning, our call is easy. It's right here in Scripture. Many of us have been like these disciples where we have taken what God has done, We've remembered it, and then we go out and try to do it in and of our own strength. We have to repent. Listen, what, the, what a dying world needs to see is not us trying to do it after we've seen Jesus do it, and we try to do it of our own strength. They need to see us waiting, desperately hoping that God would move, begging for Him to do what only He can do. And we need to repent of what places where we've tried to do it ourselves. And then we need to believe. Believe that, hey, there's one thing I can do. I can bring him to, to Jesus. And that's the invitation that we have from Jesus. Oh, faithless generation, that's us. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. We get to bring ourselves to Jesus. We get to bring our friends to Jesus. We get to bring our children to Jesus. We get to bring them to Jesus. And desperately pray and believe that God is going to do something. And then to act, to walk in those things that he's called us to walk in. Amen? Amen. Amen. God, we thank you. We thank you for your promise in the book of Acts where uh, Paul and Silas are preaching to the Philippian jailer. And, and they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God, our faith and our hope find 
the object of our dependence and trust in you. May we never move from that place. May we not think that, okay, well that's, that's how we get in the door, but then we need to continue our walk with Jesus by doing. By doing all the right things, by reading our Bibles, by praying, which are great things, God, but they are not the thing. We need to sit and trust and depend on You. And then when You say go, go. Go with confidence because we believe in You. Go with hope because You have called us to that place. Lord, help us to go. Lord, and I pray that in the going we would have faith. That we'd trust You. Lord, stir in us a desire to pray more. Rather than to go and try to fix somebody's problem, Lord, may we pray. May we bring it to You. May we not see that as a last resort or, or maybe um, something that we do real quick and then we go fix the problem. God, but may we trust you and be obedient to what you call us to do. But I thank you that you're doing this in us, that you are making us a people that would reflect Jesus to, to our neighbors, to our friends, to people in the park, God, to people on the beach. I pray that we would go with the good news of Christ today. And that we point them to a sure and steady hope. Not a belief in belief, but a belief in Jesus. Not a hope in good things, but a hope in the, the good Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.